And let's continue our worship of Christ by taking our Bibles and turning to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning in our study of God's Word. And if you're visiting with us, feel free to use that blue Bible provided in the pew pocket in front of you. You'll find the text on page 14. Genesis chapter 20. The focus today, the whole point of even this stage, is to be a platform for communicating God's truth. And we find that today in Genesis chapter 20. Due to the length of the chapter, I'll actually read it. It's something that we can take in at one time. Hear the word of God as I read. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife. For he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned to Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. I'm going to give you a little experiment. I'm going to list the titles of some books that have been published in the last 20 years. And I would like to see if you can discern a pattern. 
See if you can figure out the, uh, the interests of modern publishers. The compound effect. The Facebook effect. The Walmart effect. The Connect effect. The music effect. The CNN effect. The placebo effect. The group effect. The coaching effect. The Pinocchio effect. The CSI effect. The stress effect. The telomere effect. Okay, that's it. (laughs) I did not make those up. And I'm sure you notice the similarities. What is it about our own culture that is so interested in impact, results, making a difference, getting things done? A brief synopsis of each of these titles would point to the same conclusion. Some meaningful contribution or impact has happened on account of one of these myriad things. It's not an unrealistic thing to consider. I mean, every one of us, in some way or another, want to make a difference. We, we want to have impact. We, we want to do that which works as opposed to that which does not work. Or at least I do. Uh, uh, what about you? I mean, don't you want to have an effect? Don't you feel good when you're... you're at the end of a week and you look back on your to-do list and there's those little check boxes or lines through the stuff that you said you were going to do, you were effective? Or do you ever feel that regret of having binge-watched hours of television when your to-do list was still outstanding? It may have been cool in the moment, but afterward, you're like, oh, what a waste. What we fear more than anything is that of the hamster wheel, right? That of exerting effort, giving everything that we've got, putting in our five miles a day, which is the average of what a hamster will run, and not getting anywhere. We feel that way. And so books like this appeal to us. We want to know that when we take the the trouble to move forward, to progress, that we actually do progress, that that something actually happens. We want this in our daily lives for sure. We want this weekly. We want this annually. But friends, it goes out farther because what we want for our day is what we also want for our life. None of us want to get to the end of our lives and look back and think, I didn't do anything. It didn't mean anything. And may I take it a step further? We also want this for eternity. Those of us who believe that there is some form of life after death, which would be the majority of the people in the room, not only want to have an impact on the weak and want to have an impact with our life, but we want to have an impact for eternity. And I think it'd be fair to say that the original readers, listeners of this text shared a similar sentiment, although I want to make a clarification, they were less personally interested. What I mean by that is the nation of Israel, God's people as a whole, not just the individuals in it, wanted to make an impact through that nation. They expected it. They had been primed by God Himself 
to have this type of meaningful impact, not just on their little social sphere, but they expected that God would use them to impact the entire world. That's what the book of Genesis is about. It's about the worldwide devastation that came from sin. But then the promise that is listed over and over again for the remedy of this is that God would use a special line of people, a special seed, who would come and then restore the blessing that the world originally enjoyed. And we know that from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through where we are now in the book, that a focal point of the way that God would work through the entire world would be through the line of Abraham. If anybody had expectations that they were going to have an effect on the world, it would be these people. So they naturally would clamor in discomfort when it seemed like they weren't really making that big of a deal. You know how it goes. We see them over and over again failing. We see Israel ineffective. They lose battles. They forsake the Lord. They get taken off into captivity. Over and over again, they will return to the sacred scriptures to find hope in three narratives that are constantly working their way through the Old Testament. One is the power of God. The second is the plan of God. And the third is their place in that plan. Those are three major strands that weave their way throughout and so that they could always find hope, remembering that God is powerful, that He has a plan, and here's where it connects, and that they have a place in God's powerful plan. Friends, this is how God intends for you to find hope for an effective life as well. God is powerful. He has a plan. And what we need to figure out, where we can connect our hope is, how do we fit into this plan? How will this impact ultimately be felt upon the world? How will God bring this to pass? And what role do we play in this? It's very real. How will God impact the world? How do we really make a difference I'd encourage you to listen to the story to find out. And, and the story here in Genesis chapter 20, as odd as it may seem to you upon first reading, really does tell the theme of God's impact. The way that he will choose to bring about significant consequences, good consequences upon the world. And this story in particular falls into four movements. So it might even be helpful for you to trace these movements for your own future reading of this text and explaining it to others. I'll give them to you up front, and then I'll explain them as we go throughout. There's four movements. We call them the ruse in verses 1 and 2, the redirection in verses 3 to 7, the rebuke in verses 8 to 13, and then the remedy in verses 14 to 18. Let's begin with the ruse. Now, we don't use that word very often, but I love it because it means that somebody has tricked somebody. And in this case, we are reminded once again that Abraham, of all people, is the one who is doing the tricking. Look at the text again, Genesis 20, verses 1 and 2. From there, talking about from the plains of Mamre, where he was when he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. 
Now, these geographical details may not mean much to you, but what we need to understand is that Abraham, as a Bedouin, as a shepherd, really, that's his stock and trade, this is his livelihood, would naturally move from one place to another. Once the herds eat up all the grass in one location, he has to find another place. And so we find a similar movement. He's in the central part of the promised land, and he makes his way south to the Negev. It's like the the American southeast, if you will. This is a geographical location that anybody would have been able to identify. And he starts setting up camp and living and feeding his flocks in this new area. But of particular interest to the narrator and to you, the reader, should be this, Gerar. Gerar. What's so special about Gerar? Well, Gerar happens to have a powerful chieftain or ruler by the name of Abimelech. We find out about him in verse 2. Before Abraham even gets to Gerar, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. It seems there's been some confrontation about his wife. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And here we've got a problem. Now, for those of you who haven't been with us in our study of Genesis to this point, it could be a little confusing. Like, (laughs) what's the big deal? He says she's your sister, and then somebody takes her to be his wife. Well, this is a huge deal. Because God has promised that this seed, this, this, this one who would come and restore blessing for the entire world will come through Abraham and his wife Sarah. And if she gets taken into the harem of some foreign king, now the promise is obliterated. And Abraham here just seems to give away the farm. I mean, literally, he gives his wife away again saying that she is his sister. Have we seen this before? Absolutely, we've seen it before. Genesis chapter 12, you see there, right after he gets, Abraham gets this great promise, he experiences some threat of famine, goes down to Egypt, and the same thing happens with Pharaoh. And it doesn't turn out very good there. For those of you who don't remember, he actually passes on this little ruse and it fails miserably because she gets taken into the harem of the king. Inadvertently, he traffics his own wife so to preserve his own and it does not work out well. God has to divinely intervene to preserve the promise. But here something different is taking place, although it is similar. There's the same ruse, but God here will not let... Abimelech, touch Sarah. Why is this so important? Think with me, friends. Just last chapter, we saw that within a year, this promised child will come. It is especially important that there is no physical intercourse with Sarah, with anyone apart from Abraham himself. And so God, despite Abraham's failure, will radically intervene here, and he fails big time. But friends, as much as I and you would probably like to focus on Abraham's failure, the narrator does not. He only gives it one verse. What he rushes us along to, though, is interesting. It is actually the confrontation between Abimelech and Abraham because it's going to betray something amazing about this man Abraham, even though he totally blows it. So we move from the ruse to the redirection. The redirection. God will redirect Abimelech in this situation And we see it in verses 3 through 7, but let me read for you now just verses 3 through 5. 
But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. Notice that. He hasn't even come near her yet. Something has providentially prevented him from enjoying her in any physical way. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. This is a total, honest mistake. Well, kind of. I don't think that a married man should be taking other women, period. But within the cultural context of the ancient Near East, where a king would accumulate wives, he's committed a major faux pas. Because there was no way that he could have known that this was actually Abraham's wife because they both said out of their own mouths, we're brother and sister. I mean, what do you do with this? He's put him in a horrible position. And this isn't just a dream, friends, from God. This is a nightmare. The first words this foreign ruler ever hears from God is, you're dead meat. That is not what I want my interaction with God to be like in a dream. Something deadly has taken place here. Even though he doesn't realize it, Abimelech has incurred the divine wrath of God. This is extremely important for us to imbibe because what it is showing us is that Abraham, non-negotiably, is a man of great power. He didn't sign up for it. God chose him. But whether he wants to be or not, Abraham is a man of great potential. Either great potential for blessing or great potential for cursing. He's a watershed. You come to Abraham and you will make a decision for one or the other. And even if you accidentally slight Abraham, it could mean death to you. Notice that. I would like to... to, I don't know, maybe relate Abraham to that of a nuclear reactor. A nuclear reactor is something that has great potential for good. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's cheap and it's clean energy. 20% of what we have in the United States today is powered by nuclear power. And yet, it is extremely dangerous, is it not? Just think through Chernobyl, Three Mile Island. I mean, the, the devastation that could come if this thing's not used properly... It's not the neighborhood you want to be living in, I'll put it that way, even if you don't mind that your house is powered by it. Abraham is that type of personality. God has given him great power for good or great power for cursing, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever disdains you, he didn't even say curse. He says, whoever disdains you, I will curse. And guess what happens here? Because Abraham was upfront and honest about who he was and his special relationship with God. Abimelech accidentally disdains Abraham and incurs and brings upon himself the wrath of Almighty God. One that will result in imminent death. And because of Abraham's silence, Abimelech accidentally commits this crime. But it does not excuse him from does not excuse him from neglecting God's covenant representative. It does not excuse him from neglecting God's covenant representative. Hear me, please. 
Friends, ignorance with God is no excuse. Ignorance with God is no excuse. I think sometimes we as believers tend to think ignorance is bliss. If we don't know as much, that means we can't be held accountable for as much, right? And we certainly apply that to our evangelism. We think, well, there's this thing that operates in the back of our mind. If the people in the countries that I prayed for today, as a matter of fact, let's just use them, if... As long as they don't know that much truth, that means they can't reject that much truth and and maybe somehow God's going to be more merciful to them and the truth that they need to receive Jesus to be saved, well, that's going to be nullified because it all works out in the end. It's ignorance is bliss. That's the way that we think. As, As much as I love Billy Graham, he even bought into this in his later years as he would actually say that He doesn't know what would happen to the people who never heard of Jesus. Friends, I can tell you what would happen to the people who have never heard of Jesus. They will perish. Why? Because this Jesus is God's non-negotiable representative of blessing. Those who favor Him will receive God's favor. Those who reject Him will receive God's wrath. And you say, well, what if they do it in ignorance? What if they don't know? Well, what happens here with Abimelech? He does not know. There is no way for him to know. In fact, the one guy who should have told him the truth lied about it. And God still says, you're a dead man. So this thing needs to be remedied. So God redirects. God, though, will redirect in an amazing way because what I would expect and what could have happened here, and this is a fun game to play with your scripture reading from time to time, just imagine what could have been. God could have prevented this whole mess from ever happening in the first place. I don't mean to be irreverent, but he could have pulled a Jedi mind trick and said, you know, this is not the woman you're looking for. And the guys would have totally overlooked uh, Sarah, and we could have avoided this whole thing. God in his providence could have moved Abraham somewhere else, and yet he allows this mistake, he allows this mistake to take place. And, And notice this, he could have fixed it in a different way. He could have fixed it by immediately telling him, hey, you need to return Sarah and I will heal you. But notice what he says. He says, you need to return Sarah to Abraham and get him to pray for you and he will heal you. He does not redirect Abimelech back to God. He redirects Abimelech to Abraham. Look at the text lest you think I'm making this up. Verses, uh, look at verse 6. It becomes crystal clear. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Notice this. God is sovereignly involved in this situation. He has afflicted Abimelech in some way that he is not going to act physically on his desire for Sarah, and yet God will not sovereignly fix the problem. What he does here is he places it in Abimelech's hands in verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife for, listen to this explanation, he is a prophet. It's the first time this word is used in the entire Bible. He is a prophet. He is one that has a special relationship with me. He is one who intercedes for human beings on, uh, with me on their behalf. Notice this, he is a prophet, and if you go to him, he will pray for you, and you shall live. But, if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. 
Do you see what's happening here? Who's going to have the impact? Even though God could have sovereignly intervened and remedied this entire situation, even though he could have prevented it from the very beginning, what do we see about God's plan here? He is determined to work through his chosen representative. You've got to get that. God will not bypass his plan. Yes, he is powerful, and yes, he has a plan, and he will follow that plan to the very end. God will not work outside of his chosen representative. Abraham is God's special intermediary for blessing or cursing for for the entire world. And he says, if you want healing, you return this man's wife, and you talk to him, you get him to pray for you, then you can have healing. Thus I say there's a redirection. And so we move from Abraham's ruse to God's redirection to finally, uh, thirdly, Abraham, excuse me, Abimelech's rebuke. There's this rebuke that takes place in verses 8 through 13. N- notice it. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And notice this. And the men were very much afraid. You get the picture, right? They realize how powerful this man is who is in their midst. They are scared to death that they have on their hands a loaded gun with the safety turned off. For those of you who have ever handled a firearm before or have seen other people handle a firearm, one of the most important elements is to know whether or not the gun is loaded. And I've been in plenty of shooting scenarios, don't worry, at a range. I've been in plenty of shooting scenarios in which everyone was trying to be as careful as they possibly could be, and everyone was checking to make sure that there was nothing in the gun, and everyone was trying to make sure that the safety was on, and then somebody finds out that someone didn't clean out the chamber, or that somebody did leave the safety off, and it becomes a very solemn moment on what should have been a lot of fun. I think that's exactly what happened here. These men are carrying on with their life just like everything is going totally fine and they realize we've got a loaded gun on our hands. This man is powerful. Having realized that, Abimelech naturally as a leader is furious. And so he respectfully rebukes Abraham in verses 9 and 10. Notice it. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And he continues, verse 10, What did you see that you did these things? I mean, this is a natural response. He's thinking like, if you knew the truth, if you knew that I could enjoy blessing by blessing you and that I would be cursed by God if I slighted you or disdained you in any way, like, why wouldn't you tell me? Why wouldn't you have given me a chance to, to respond? Surely I must have offended you in some way. No, I mean, if you knew that you had that kind of power with God, I mean, you certainly would have told me ahead of time, right? You know what this whole incident reminds me of? It was a a video blog that I saw a few years back. And I've referenced this before, but this is a powerful truth. Of the magicians, Penn and Teller. And Penn was confronted by a Christian at the close of one of his his shows, and he was, and this was his word, proselytized. 
What he means by that is some Christian came up to him afterward and shared the gospel with him and told him that if he didn't receive Christ, that he would go to hell. Just told him the truth. And so what Penn does in this two-minute little thing, you could pull it up on YouTube, is fascinating. Is he says, you know what? If I believe that there was some type of eternal state of heaven and there was some type of eternal place of damnation, this makes total sense. I know that it was hard for that person to do, but it makes total sense that, that, that they would tell me this truth. And if, and if I was a Christian, I would certainly proselytize. And then here's his reason. He said, how much would you have to hate somebody to not tell them the truth? How much would you have to hate somebody to not tell them the truth about eternal blessings, about eternal damnation? That's exactly what Abimelech is asking here. As a foreigner, as a pagan, how much must you hate me to have not told me that you were God's chosen intermediary, that you were God's chosen agent, His chosen representative? Why would you have withheld from me some dire need-to-know information? And Abraham's answer, Abraham's answer, I think, greatly represents our own. Notice what Abraham says. In verses 11 through 13, Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Paul's here. Do you, you see what's going on? He thinks that he has a beautiful wife, and she must be. In fact, this is a humorous point for us, but it's a point well taken. She's 90 years old, and she's drop-dead gorgeous. So he's so afraid that he's going to be killed because of his wife, and that these people don't fear God at all, that he's going to incur some type of physical harm if he fulfills the plan of God. And so, uh, friends, this is just what, we call in the counseling world the fear of man. The fear of man. You call it whatever you want. Other terms we like to use are peer pressure, codependency. This idea that we feel like someone else is as important as God. This is fear of man. And once you have fear of man, then you're going to have what I would call half-truth backup plans. Then you start compromising on truth, and that's exactly what Abraham does. Because he was afraid of those people more than he was afraid of God. Notice what he does in verse 11, excuse me, verse 12. Because she is indeed my sister. Notice this. The daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness or the loyalty that you must express to me. At every place which we come, say of me, he is my brother. This was Abraham's plan from the very beginning. When he was called to go into his foreign country, knowing that he was a politically powerful man, he thought that someone would snipe off his wife and therefore kill him to get to her. And they had already conducted this little ruse one time before. Who knows how many other times they had done it. It didn't fall out so bad for him. But they compromised. And friends, just a little lesson on truth. I say this for the children present. As well, this truth is not just about what's right. It isn't just about saying what's accurate, but it's about what you convey. You can lie by not saying something just as much as you can lie by saying the wrong thing. Does this make sense? 
He withholds the information. He's saying a truth. She really is his half-sister. And for those of you who aren't acclimated to the, the cultural milieu of the ancient Near East, it wasn't until Moses came along that any form of what we would now call incest was actually a factor. It's a social taboo for us. We think, oh, who in the world would ever marry their half-sister? Uh, indeed, God did give us that law, but he gave it a long time after this. At this point, there was nothing wrong with that. And so Abraham's acting within the cultural condition of his day, but what he's doing is he's modifying the information because of fear of man. I have a book in my office uh, by uh, Ed Welch. I would commend it to anyone here. The title of it is, When People Are Big, God is Small. It's a great title. When people are big, God is small. What's happening here is what the old Presbyterian preacher James Montgomery Boyce would call seesaw theology. Now you may not remember, for those of you who are like under the age of 18, you may not know what a seesaw is because they don't put them on playgrounds anymore. Because you could smash your fingers and break your arms. But it was a legitimately fun thing. It was like a board and it would go back and forth. And anyway, but when one side's up, the other side's down. And when one side's down, the other side's up. That's exactly what's going on here. When your view of God is high, your view of man is low. (laughs) But when your view of man gets high and you think that he's important and that he's the one who calls the shots, guess what happens to your view in regard of God? It goes low. And fear of man will do that every time. We become so enamored with man and what he can do to us that we forget about God and his great plans. And Welch in his book actually offers some specific symptoms of those who are struggling with the fear of man. I would encourage you to consider these for yourself today to see if this is something that you are struggling with. Symptoms that you are struggling with the fear of man. The acute feeling of peer pressure. The desire to be away from people, reluctance to be around people. You're easily embarrassed. You often second-guess your decisions. You're overcommitted. And, silver bullet that gets them all, you're hesitant to share the gospel. That discovers everybody. The truth is we just think way too much about other mere mortals. We think that they're so powerful and that they can do so much and we neglect God's power and His plan and because of this we put people in great danger. It's that evangelism piece I think that I'm the most concerned about and it's not me trying to do a guilt trip by any means but I mean think about it. When we're hesitant to tell someone truth about Jesus because we don't want that we're not even afraid we're going to die. We're afraid that they'll think poorly of us. It's a fear of man problem. Our view of God is too low. Our our view of man is too high. And that's exactly what had happened to Abraham here. He's messed things up. His ruse has led to God's redirection, and Abimelech has offered this rebuke. But there's a remedy. The final movement, the remedy. It's in verses 14 to 18, but let me just read verses 14 to 16. 
to begin. Notice how this entire situation is resolved. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Now, Paul's here. Abimelech, at this point, does something that's radically different than what Pharaoh does. And the whole Pharaoh incident, back in Genesis chapter 12, Pharaoh had actually given Abraham all this stuff up front as a diary, and he tells Abraham, look, you get out of here. I want you out. Get out of my land. Keep the stuff. I don't care. Just get out. It is no respect to Abraham. He just says, get out of here as fast as you can. I don't feel like trading stuff. But in this case, in this instance, Abimelech is just going to shower good things upon Abraham. He gives him more staff, male servants, female servants. He gives him livestock, which is basically liquid cash in that day. I mean, it is worth money. And then he not only gives stuff to Abraham, but he gives something to Sarah, I mean, to Abraham on behalf of Sarah as well. You notice it there in the next verse. It says, verse 15, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. He gives them land. He tells them stay. And then to Sarah, Verse 16, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. He pays self-inflictive punitive damages. I mean, a thousand pieces of silver, a thousand shekels of silver. If you do the math, this is about 25 pounds of silver. Now, in the current economy, this would pull in about 250 grand for us. But that pales in comparison to what it actually would have been worth in that culture. I mean, a typical wage for a Babylonian worker around this time is six shekels per year. Do the math. We're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of currency in our own day. Listen to me. Abimelech isn't just giving him a little gift and saying, let's let bygones be bygones. He is pouring out. He is showing radical blessing to this individual because he now understands who he's dealing with. Now that he knows that this is the guy that, that if blessed will also pass along blessing, he is extravagant in his gift giving, in his honor, and he just pours it out. And notice what happens in return. When God's covenant representative is worshipped with everything that Abimelech has, there is an effect. Verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. And here we learn something that we didn't know for the entire narrative. For the Lord had closed all the wombs the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is a fascinating note, and I have no idea why it's here at the end and not the beginning. I wish I had some cool scholarly thing to tell you. But it does put the story in a different light, because when I read Genesis chapter 20, what I'm typically thinking is this, oh, all of this happened like within two days. Don't you read it that way? Like it's just a really quick turnaround. What this shows us is that Abimelech had already been suffering for months. There's no way that you can tell that people in your household aren't having kids unless you have a few months of leeway. 
It's been months of suffering. And Abimelech, through this entire thing, we've picked up on it. We haven't hit it much, but he's afraid that he's going to die. He's already suffering in some way. It is this physical illness, whatever it is that he has, that has prevented him from enjoying Sarah as his wife. So he has been physically suffering. His servants have been physically suffering. Like the curse had already been extended into this family and into this household. And it was soon about to lead to their death. And then he pours out, here's the difference, here's the effect, here's the consequence, if we were to make it a modern book title. This man blesses Abraham. And then Abraham prays. And everyone's healed. Everyone. Which should be really interesting to you and me who have been reading this narrative all along is, wow, God can heal the fertile womb. God can heal the fertile womb. I wonder if there's some way in which Sarah's womb is now healed. We'll find out next week. But for now... But for now, don't miss the picture. What brings about this blessing? What brings about the God's intended effect? It is the covenant representative. It is the divine intermediary. It is the one that God has chosen to represent him on this earth. If he wants to know, if anybody wants to know how to have an impact, if anyone wants to know how to experience the blessing of God, they can't experience it directly without positively responding to God's chosen representative. I think that the Israelite reader would have walked away from this text if they would have rolled up the scroll and said, we're going to take a break for today. They would have been actually to have been able to have sweet thoughts of knowing that, yes, I belong in this line. I enjoy God's special promise. I have a special relationship with God on account of a covenant representative. That covenant representative could have been one of God's appointed priests. It could have been one of God's appointed kings. But God's people always knew that if they were going to enjoy the special blessings of God, it would come through the individual that God had chosen. And yet, they still waited. They still waited for one who would fully and finally represent God's blessing to the world. Because Abraham would die. And even as we read in Hebrews chapter 7, those high priests that they had that that gave them that blessing before God, those guys would die. They were destructible. They were waiting for one to come, for some seed to come, who would actually bring about this blessing with, via the power of an indestructible life. And it would be in our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God's perfect covenant representative, that the blessing that God intended for this world would ultimately flow. You want to know where the impact would come? You want to know how God will have an effect upon the nations, upon the entire world? It isn't just through you and your plans. It is through your capacity and ability to point people to God's representative, and that is Jesus. That is what makes 
the difference. It is him. It is the representative. And Jesus, friends, thankfully, is no failed covenant head like Abraham who blows it big time. He is one who walked in perfect obedience to God and then died on our behalf, not for his own sin, as Hebrews 7 told us, but for the sins of all of us or any who would believe in him. And he'd remedied the whole wrath situation and had given us peace and reconciliation with God so that we would know eternal blessing. That is Jesus. That is the remedy. That is the effect that God himself intended to have. It's in Jesus. And so as we think about the way then that we would enjoy impact on the world, a couple things need to take place. First is this. If you're here today, and I say this as sincerely as I can, and you have not received this Jesus, if you have not decided to follow Him in faith, if you have not forsaken your sin and trusted in Him alone, not your own works, but in Him alone, not in some other earthly mediator, but in Him alone, you do not know God's blessing. You have no of the effects of God's righteousness poured out on you. It is only through Jesus. So many of you seem so close to fully and finally trusting in Him alone. And I beg you, please, run to God's covenant representative alone. That is where blessing is found. But so many more of us have already received this blessing. We, we have poured out everything for Jesus. We realize that our lives are for Him and Him alone. But the question for us then is, so how then do we have impact? It was really simple. I think there would be two things. One, we need to magnify our view of Jesus. And two, we need to minimize our view of others. And yes, I said you need to minimize your view of others. You need to magnify your view of Jesus. You need to minimize your view of others. It is the seesaw, friends. I don't know where you are on that playground ride, but you need to make sure that God is up and that people are down. You say, oh, I get it, Justin. I know I'm supposed to have a bigger view of God. How in the world do I cultivate that? What do you practically intend for me to do to get a bigger view of God and to get a smaller view of other humans that I tend to be so afraid of? Well, I'm not going to blow your mind here. It's the same things that we see repeated throughout Scripture, but I'll tell you, they ultimately work. I'll list them in order. Exaltation, edification, and evangelism. You want to have an impact? It's exaltation, edification, and evangelism. It all begins with exaltation. See, friends, if you want to know how to fix your fear of man issues... You don't start with man. You start with God. You start with your view of His Son. You need a clearer view of Jesus, His covenant representative. And so it should be the passion of your life to worship this Jesus. And so you want to involve yourself in every form of exaltation that you possibly can of the risen Christ. And I would say to you that many of you have already, you're off to a good start this week. This is what this gathering is about. This is what I was praying for in the pastoral prayer. What we're trying to do here today, and I say this to the scores of you who are visiting today, every week we are trying to put Jesus on display. And I'm not that worried about 
your, your emotional response or your feelings. I, I want you just to be captivated with Christ. I, I want to meet real needs. I'm hoping that the sermon's practical and helpful. But at the end of the day, what we are praying for and what we are striving for is that we would have a higher view of Jesus by the time we get out of this place. And so I would tell you, friends, keep coming to this corporate gathering. That is a way to get a higher view of God. Because we think more intentionally about him and this place that so much time goes into this hour for you. Because we want you to enjoy this higher view of him. But I would say it's not just corporate. It's also individual. You should be exalting Christ individually. And for this is just you enjoying time in his word and prayer. And I am not going to tell you that you have to do 30 minutes a day at 4 o'clock in the morning to make sure that you're ready to, to worship Jesus. All I'm saying is that you should spend some time every day making your heart happy in Jesus. And if it takes you four chapters a day reading through the entire Bible in a year to do that, fine. Please do that. But if it's just you spending one minute on one verse meaningfully to warm your heart before the Lord and to remind yourself of what He's done. Do that. So many times, pastor types like myself get ultra-aggressive and they think that there's some type of nobility in knowing that people are doing like lots of time and lots of reading. Listen, I'm not worried about the quantity of your time in the Word. I'm worried about the quality of your time in the Word and the consistency of it. And you should learn to make yourself happy in the Lord. If it is a burden for you to read your Bible, you're reading your Bible too long. Or you've got a major sin problem and you may not be converted. But seriously, just make your heart happy in Jesus. Exaltation. The second thing is, after you've exalted Christ, then you can edify other believers. Listen, I know you want to jump straight to evangelism, but you will not share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with lost people and strangers that you don't know if you can't talk about Jesus with Christians that you do know. Number two, edification. Building up other believers. And yes, again, that happens corporately in a setting just like this. We are encouraging one another to think about Jesus. And guess what? It'll happen individually as soon as the final benediction is given at this place today because you will then have the opportunity to share with someone else what you have been learning about Jesus. And that should be a goal of yours. I realistically think it should be a goal of yours every week. Whether it be in a one-on-one scenario with someone before they leave that door, or whether it be you going to a small group and spending time trying to build up others in their faith, you should be pouring into other Christians' lives on a regular basis. This is an expression of your big view of God. You need this, friend, and they need this. We must be speaking truth about Jesus to one another. This is how you get a bigger view of God and a smaller view of man. I'm all for the small talk. Talk about politics. Talk about weather. Talk about sports. That's cool. But talk about Jesus as well. Make Him the focus of the conversation because that is what we need. We need a bigger view of Him. Once you get exaltation and edification, then it could be less intimidating. I won't say it won't be intimidating at all, but it will be less intimidating to talk to non-Christians about Jesus then you can, can invite people to this service even though it's not primarily targeted to non-Christians. 
But if it gives you a good excuse to talk to somebody about Jesus, bring them on. We're glad to have you. But more than that, you just tell them. You just tell them in your normal conversation, like, for example, what you did this weekend. And instead of talking about just cutting the grass and cleaning out the garage and saying, going to church, you could say, we worshiped Jesus. Why don't you try that line? What? Worship Jesus. I know what going to church means. I do not know what worship Jesus means. Well, let me explain to you. It doesn't have to be weird. You don't have to get through the entire gospel presentation every time that you talk with someone. But here's the deal, friends. The name of Jesus should regularly be on our lips with the lost. Not just conservative politics, not just general thoughts about God. Listen to me. The name of Jesus Christ should regularly be on your lips. They have no problem with you being a moral person. They have no problem with you being a church-going person. They have no problem with you being a Donald Trump supporter. Actually, they do. (laughs) But they have a problem with someone who actually believes and follows a risen Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that you would be willing to take hard stands on other things that don't matter and not be represented for Jesus is proof positive that you may not be exalting and edifying to the degree that you should because you are not evangelizing. Maybe to take the pressure off, an analogy would be helpful. Because again, I... Well, analogy. A few years ago, Tanya and I had the opportunity to take our kids to the Grand Canyon. We lived out in Los Angeles at the time. We didn't have enough money to make it back to North Carolina for Christmas, but we did have enough money to go to the Grand Canyon. So that's what we did. And it's a pretty interesting uh, trip if you've ever done it because it's flat. I mean, there's like, there's no indication that you're coming up on the Grand Canyon. Except for... The tourist attractions, and this is, blows my mind, the, the, the tourist attractions that would get you to pay $20 to see videos of the Grand Canyon, but not the Grand Canyon itself. I'm not kidding. The closer you get to the Grand Canyon, there's all these little shops, and they'll sell you figurines, they'll sell you artifacts, they'll, they'll show you videos, but it's not the Grand Canyon. People will go and spend money on that and forget that what they ultimately came to see is just a few more miles down the road. But you get there. And you finally get close enough to peek over that edge, and it is just the most mind-blowing experience I've ever had in my, my life, aesthetically. I mean, just how did this happen? This is so big. It's stunning. What I would like to, what I would like to, to draw a connection between is just the beauty of that canyon, its, its immensity, and the person of Jesus. Friends, it is only your job to point people to the immense and beautiful person of Jesus. You don't have to run a sideshow. You don't have to impress them with it. You don't have to quote all the stats and figures to to blow their mind. Just show them Jesus. So here's the deal, friends. You're the park ranger. (laughs) It is not your goal to be seen. It is your goal to show. 
So many times we're just thinking, I'm a park ranger for Jesus. I better make sure that my uniform's pressed. I want to make sure that they like me. I, you know, I want to have a good personality. I want to represent the canyon well, you know? Like, so I want to make sure I'm engaging and I want to make sure that I'm really creative. No, friends, you just point people to the immense beauty of Jesus. That's all you do. Stop worrying about how you're going to pull it off or how you're going to transition or, or how you're going to work your way into it. You just talk about Jesus. And here, it all comes full circle. If you're already exalting Him regularly and you're already edifying other believers with those same truths, how simple is it just to go ahead and share the same thing with those who need it? Point people to him. And so we learn then how God will affect change in this world. It is not through us particularly, it is through his son specifically. And it is just our job if we want to have an effect to point people to him.